The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered round Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the traditions of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers and kettles. So, the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders, instead of eating their food with defiled hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it's written, these people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he continued, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honour your father and mother and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is korban, that is, devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many things like that. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull? he asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them, for it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach, and then out of the body? In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. So my slightly unusual situation is of having the same passage to speak just two weeks apart at Magdalen Road. So if you've been memorising your green programme, you will see that on February the 8th, In our sin series, we're in Mark 7 again, thinking about uncleanliness. So what that means for this evening is that I'm not going to focus hugely on the end of the passage today. If you want to hear more about the end of the passage, there will be some. If you want to hear more, two weeks' time in the morning, down at the school, we'll see you there. What we're going to focus on, though, particularly, is this interplay between the Pharisees and teachers of the law and what he says about them and authority why they do what they do, why they believe what they believe. I think it's a very relevant passage, as I've reflected on it this week. It's very relevant because lots of times Christians from different traditions try and talk about things or discuss things or argue about things. And yet, what often is going on under the surface is that different Christians have a different authority, a different foundation for what they believe or for doing something. So in Mark, so far, we've seen week on week on week, Jesus comes with authority. He comes with authority to deal with the symptoms of a broken world, chaotic worlds, sickness and storms and sin and disease and demons and death. 
And here Jesus comes with authority to put these things right again, to bring order out of chaos, to undo the effects of the fall. And yet it's a different kind of authority this week from Jesus. He comes into conflict with the authority of the Pharisees, teachers of the law. Theirs is an authority that looks good, looks sound, it's respected. But Jesus says it's profoundly unhelpful and profoundly damaging. So when believers do often disagree about things, very often it's because there is a different authority underlying their belief. We don't necessarily realise that. But often that's what's going on. So a bit of background, just some things to be thinking over and chewing on before we jump into the passage. And that is that people often speak about four different areas of authority that Christians have, broadly speaking. And they are, you've probably heard them before, some of you, but Bible, reason, institution, and experience. Bree, B-R-I-E. Bible, reason, institution, and experience. This is, this is simplifying things, and there's off, obviously overlap. But you'll see where I'm going, hopefully, when we get there. So the Bible people, they want to say, well, for my lot, the Bible has total authority in all matters of life and faith. To go to the Bible is where you look, ultimately, for authority. <coughs> the second guys, the reason guys, they, they want to take reason or perhaps they supplement the Bible with reason. And so they say, well, for me to believe something... It must be discerned by human reason. I can only agree with what can be demonstrated or what is sensible or reasonable or intelligent. The institution, guys, well, they say, well, what does my church believe? What do the priests or, or bishops or my leaders say? Because I go with them. So you've got Bible, reason, institution, and then experience. Again, perhaps a different group of Christians sometimes. They say, well, I'm just going to be obedient with what I think the Spirit's saying. I'm going to go with whatever way the Spirit moves me. Now, as I say, obviously that's simplified and that's more complicated in reality. Perhaps if you've had discussions with friends or Christians from kind of different streams, then you will experience and know some of that. But let me just ask a question and try and put into people's mouths what they might say to that question from those four different things. So let's ask the question, do miracles happen today? There's our question, do miracles happen today? And the B for Bible guys, they say, well, what does the Bible teach about it? And they will ask questions of scripture, and they will say things like, well, did God do miracles? Does God have the power to do miracles? Has God changed? Is there any reason why he might have stopped doing miracles for some reason? Those are the kinds of questions the B for Bible guys will say. The R for reason guys will say, well, can I understand how a miracle would happen? Aren't miracles a contradiction of the laws of nature? I'm going to struggle with this then. The I for institution guys say, well, what does my church think? What is the accepted teaching on this? What is the party line? Because I go with them. And then the Eve experience say, well, I've never seen one, therefore they can't exist, or I have seen one, and therefore they do. So sometimes, as Christians, when we disagree with one another, it's because we're working from different foundations, different authority. 
that the kind of final basis for what we believe or what we take on a particular issue. And it's not just an in-house question for Christians. For people who might not be Christians, it's still a, well, why do you make that decision? Why do you live that way? Why do you choose right from wrong? What is your authority for doing that? On what basis do you decide? And so as we enter Mark 7, the passage begins with this very topic from verses 1 to 5. And we see the problem of authority. Have a look down at it with me. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered round Jesus and when they see his disciples not washing their hands, not doing the ceremonial washing that they all do, then they say, well, why don't they do that? Verse 5, so the Pharisee teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders? instead of eating their food with defiled hands. Why don't you treat our tradition as your authority? Why don't you live according to the tradition of the elders? What's going on? Well, back in Exodus, you can see that the the priests are taught to do a washing ceremony before they serve in the tabernacle. Exodus 30 and 19, Aaron and his sons are to wash their hands and feet with water from it. Whenever they eat the, the tent, enter the tent of meeting, they shall wash with water so they won't die. Also, when they approach the altar to minister by presenting a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash their hands and feet so they won't die. It's a lasting ordinance for Aaron and his descendants for the generations to come. So Exodus 30, you see it in the tabernacle for the priests. You see it later on in the temple as well when they're in the land. But what seems to have happened here is the Pharisees and teachers of the law have taken something good and ex- expanded it and blown it up. They've made up their own rules and systems. They've made traditions of the elders, as they're called. There's a system that says all sorts of people at all sorts of times are to do do all sorts of washing in everyday life. They weren't from the Old Testament law. In fact, they were based on that, but they had been drawn up. And that was what was going on. Drawn up by men. They were rules. And so what you get in Mark 7 is an argument about authority. There's just the conflict. Why does Jesus ignore the tradition? So if there is Bible and reason and institution and experience, essentially we have here institution going on. This is the way we do it. Why don't you listen to the elders? That's where the conflict comes from. So there's a problem of authority at the beginning. The thing that Jesus then says... Secondly, verse 6 to 13, is that the Bible has the supreme authority. Let me just read to you there. He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it's written, these people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You've let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. He says, Pharisees, you can tick the box and you can say that you trust God. But in reality, you've rejected the Bible. You've rejected the commands of God as your supreme authority and you have replaced them with tradition. You've replaced them with institution. These people honour me with their lips. They say the right thing. They sound authentic. They look like they're going to please God. 
But in reality, their hearts are far away. And they don't do what pleases God. Actually, they obey man-made rules. For them, it's, it's the external thing of looking the part. Uncleanliness is on the outside. Jesus says, you've missed the point. For God, it's internal. God looks at the hearts. Just helpful to pause there and make a mental note or write something down, asking the question, where, where does this bite for me? What does this look like in my week? And, and one question I came up with, or I don't know if it's helpful for you, but it's helpful for me, and that is the, what are you like when it's just you? Because when we care about externals, generally it's because other people are there and they're watching us and we're seeking to impress. But what do you like when it's just you? Because often that reveals something. Whether we've got this external, internal righteousness thing right. Whether we're simply obeying the tradition of the elders or indeed the commands of God. And he gives us an example in verse 9. And he talks about this thing called Corban. Now what is Corban? What's going on? Well, Corban money was a kind of vow you could make to designate particular money to God. It's as if you sort of tag it and say, God, this is your money here. I'm putting this into this mental box, or this real box. This is for you, Lord. But then imagine this scenario. Imagine Mr. Believer gives particular money to Corban, generously dedicating a big stash of money, and then his parents get ill. And it all goes horribly wrong for them. They get into financial problems of some sort. And, and he says, well, can I... Sorry, do you mind if I just take this money back out of the Corbin box and put it into here, this box, so I can serve my parents and love them? Because the scriptures say I'm supposed to be looking after my parents. The Bible says I must help them. And yet the Pharisees and teachers of the law say, sorry, as soon as you lose, it's gone. The money in the Corbin box, that, you can't use that anymore. You can't help your parents with that. Which means Jesus says to them, 12 and 13, you no longer let them do anything for their father and mother, thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down. And you do many things like that. You see the situation, say, parents get into trouble, Pharisees say, sorry, that money is designated Corban. God says, look after your parents. And so Jesus says, well, you've nullified the word of God. Your tradition has trumped the word of God. Your human Corban tradition means you're not looking after your parents as you're meant to. And therefore you're sinning. It's a stinging indictment. I guess Corban wasn't a bad thing on its own. It's just the fact that it has trumped the commands of God. Which again means we need to ask the sort of questions that say, what traditions do we have and do they serve the gospel? Do they help people worship God or are they detrimental to people's worship of God? The, the traditions that we, that we have, do they point you to Christ? Do they point you away from him? Ultimately, the, the Bible, the commands of God, need to be our foundation. And so it's one of the reasons, of course, that we encourage people to have Bibles open and you've got them on your laps very well. 
But it's because preachers like me get it wrong sometimes. Or it's because the Christian book that you're reading sometimes gets it wrong. Or it's because we want you to be assessing and evaluating us as a church and the kind of things we do and the traditions that we have. Because ultimately the commands of God need to be our foundation for doing what we do. The sort of stuff that happens in church. And slightly further afield, sometimes different churches or networks very definitely say that the Bible is not the sole, final authority for them. So you've got B-R-I-E, and they say, no, it's not just B. It's not just B. So officially, at least, officially, the Roman Catholic Church explicitly says, it is not from sacred scripture alone that the church draws her certainty about everything that's been revealed. It is not from scripture alone Continues, therefore, both sacred tradition and sacred scripture are to be accepted and venerated with the same sense of devotion and reverence. So they've got Bible and institution on a par. But I take it from this chapter and many others that the Bible must be supreme. Which brings us to the final section in these verses. When we look at Christ as the Bible's supreme interpreter, that should be to verse 23 and not just 22, if you're taking notes, or a pedant. Because, do you see, you might say, or you might have heard other people say, well, it's all very well and good to say that your Bible is your supreme authority, But doesn't it just depend on your interpretation? Can't you make the Bible say what you want it to say? Surely it's all about the interpretation of the individual. I think that's true to some extent. But that's not to say that all interpretations are equally right. That there is wrong interpretation and there is right interpretation. And we need to learn to read the Bible as it was meant to be read. In this passage in Mark 7 though, we see that Jesus has something vital to say about interpretation of the Bible. Let me read again from 14 to 23. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. If he left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about his parable. Are you so dull, he asked, don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them, for it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach, and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come, sexual immorality and theft and murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Jesus heads back to the start of the chapter, to the original issue. And he talks about clean and unclean food. And he doesn't appeal to an outside authority, but he simply teaches them. He doesn't even quote from the scriptures. He restates and redefines what cleanliness and uncleanliness means. It's an extraordinary appeal to his own authority. It's blasphemous if he's not who he says he is. He does two things. He says, firstly, 
And this is the extraordinary thing. He says the food laws were temporal. The food laws were, were good for a time and a place, but now they're done with. Mark clarifies that for us, end of verse 19, telling us exactly what he's saying. Jesus declaring all foods clean, but Jesus already said it. No, no, what defiles you is not the kind of food that goes into your tummy. What defiles you is what's in your heart. Which is the second point. So if he says the first one, food laws are temporal, the second one, your heart is the problem. Did you notice heart coming up again and again as we read it? Well, so what's in your heart? What makes you unclean? It's a huge thing for Mark because suddenly we see something of what Jesus has come to rescue his people from. Suddenly there's this diagnosis of what the problem with the world is. We've, we've seen something of the symptoms of that problem with demons and death and disease and sickness and suffering. But suddenly we see what really the issue is. And it's not something out there somewhere. It's in here. It's in our hearts. It's as if we're at the hospital. And he does some kind of cardiogram. And he puts the results up for you to see. And you can see that there are clogged arteries and leaky valves and irregular heartbeats. And, and it looks terminal. It looks awful. It's messy. It's unhealthy. It's a huge problem. See what he's saying? He's saying, Pharisees, you care about external cleanliness. I'm looking the part, I'm washing hands. But the problem is hearts. The problem is what's in here. We can fake external cleanliness. We can't fake our hearts. We can't fake what's going on inside. We can't fake the reality of what's in our hearts and what comes out of them. I said at the start, you need to come back in a couple of weeks to get more on these verses, which I think are really important. But we will just look through them briefly now. Verse 21, I think, is the heading of the rest of the, the next couple of verses. It is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Notice that they're all about self. They're all focused in on self. And I will get what I want, and if you get in the way, then watch out. So what are they? Sexual immorality. That's wider than just adultery, the kind of stuff we were thinking about this morning, if you were there, from Ezekiel. But it's the way that you have that thought about that person and you linger there. It's the battle that people have with images and internet. Theft. Theft isn't necessarily the kind of thing that makes its way onto crime watch. But just the little stuff. It's taxes and everyday office type things and taking what is not yours. Why do shops need to put up signs the whole time that say shoplifting is theft? Why do they need to do that? Because of our hearts. Murder, adultery, greed. I don't like the way he puts them on by side of each other because I think murder and adultery, sure. But greed, come on. Jesus, you're being a bit over the top there, aren't you? Because in our materialistic Western culture, 
Greed for material things is expected. The advertisers know what we're like. They know how to tempt our greedy hearts with the promise of happiness. If only we had this item, and you didn't realise you needed it, but you do, and your life will be perfect. And, and we get it, and within a week it's back to the same old. And we need something else, and something else. Why does money have such a problem? Or such a problem in our hearts, such a hold over us? Malice. Malice is the desire to harm somebody else. Think of you being in the corner. Someone's pushed you into the corner metaphorically. And your desire to, to hurt them. To make them pay for what they've done. Think of the person that winds you up and you're driving home and, and you secretly want to see them suffer in some way. You, want to, you love it when you see them fail. In the heart of hearts. You replay conversations in your head in that scenario over and over again. And, and this time... They lose and you win. And they lose and you win. Malice wants to hurt people. Deceit and lewdness gets to do with the way that we speak, the way that we use our words. Deceitful speech that seeks to lie or to trick or to mislead or to pull the wool over somebody's eyes. Lewd speech that's vulgar or smutty, unhelpful. And the envy words. Envy is a strange word here. Envy is it's a broad meaning. It's, it's me and what I have or what I want. And it covers sort of the stinginess of someone's character. But also then the, the jealous attitude towards what they have and wanting their stuff. It's about self. Having what I want and getting what they have. Slander, gossip, half-truths, point-scoring, arrogance. Do you know you're really lucky to have me? There's nothing wrong with me, really. I'm okay. Folly. It's the Old Testament word for people who don't know God, people who are lost in the world, who are morally and spiritually insensitive, who are foolish. And Jesus says, do you want to know what makes you unclean? It's not washing hands. That's not going to help. It's not the outside of the bowl. It's not, not using soap. So people can see that you look clean and you've obeyed the rules. No, it's inside. It's your heart. And Jesus says, that is the problem. That is what makes us unclean. And if this is the truth, if we've reached, in Mark's Gospel, the problem, the real problem, if the cardiogram is there and we think, do you know what, I look at those verses and that's me, I know what I'm like, then here is the problem that Jesus has come to solve. Here is the problem of sinful hearts. And what is the answer to that problem? Well, you need to come along in the weeks to come. But I want to say, ultimately, it's a double problem as we look at these verses. The first thing is, when we recognise who God is, and we see the reality of our own hearts, then God's righteous anger against us is something that would need to be solved. Because if, if 22 to 23 describe us, 
then that is a huge issue when we have a God who is so unlike that. That's the first problem. The second one is, is just the problem of our hearts. It's not just a question of, of, of God not being angry with us anymore, but it's the ongoing living like this. We need something to, to change us. We need a heart transplant so that we don't live like this anymore. So that we can live for, for him rather than for self. But as I say, you need to come back in future weeks.